Though we're apart these days, we're sharing more. So, at GEICO, we'd like to say thanks. Thanks for sharing your savage dance moves. Thanks for sharing your DIY haircut fails. Thanks for sharing your inner lip sync star. Now, it's our turn to share with the GEICO Giveback. A 15% credit on car and motorcycle policies for current and new customers. Because we're committed for the long haul, the 15% credit lasts your full policy term. Visit geico.com slash giveback for more info and eligibility. Hey guys, it's Bobby Bones. I host The Bobby Bones Show, and I'm pretty much always sleepy because I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. A couple hours later, I get all my friends together, and we get into a room, and we do a radio show. We share our lives, we tell our stories, we try to find as much good in the world as we possibly can, and we look through the news of the day that you'll care about. Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music, too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app. Gabby and our field producer, Miranda, have been driving around Searcy County, trying to get people to talk about Janie's case. Knocking on people's doors without warning is the last thing we wanted to do. As we talked about in season one, this can be dangerous for us. We also run the risk of having a witness shut down completely and be unwilling to talk. But in a place where a lot of people have unlisted phone numbers and addresses that don't show up on GPS, Sometimes, a last resort is all we have. Hey, I was just about to call you. Well, we just went by Kim's house, met her husband, yeah. and gave, a, gave him the phone number. And then she called and said, don't talk to me, don't call me, leave me alone. All right, fair enough. So, Kim, definitely not... We went and saw Jamie yesterday, and he seemed, like, yeah, Jamie seemed just kind of like, uh, that thing again. Like, I think he, he said something like, I've turned over every rock that I could and, like, couldn't ever find out anything. Just like we found in season one, it takes a long time for people in small towns to trust an outsider. But in Marshall, we've had some additional challenges. Because there has been so much work done on the case over the years, many people are reluctant to talk unless they can be assured that there will be progress in the case. Otherwise, they see no benefit to digging the case up again. Everyone you've heard about so far, Jay, Kim, Ron Rose, Gary Don, all of those people who were at the party have been interviewed multiple times over the 30 years since Janie died. They've been legally obliged to show up for depositions served to them by prosecutors and lawyers. They've been interviewed by journalists. They've had articles written about them across Arkansas. And in 2009, ABC broadcast their 40-minute episode of Primetime about Janie's death, bringing everything about her case to the national stage. And so, when you have another group of outsiders asking questions, what would you do? Would you want to relive the same night 30 years ago again and again? Especially if you were being accused of her murder. I'm Katherine Townsend, and this is Helen Gone.
It's 2004, 15 years after Janie died. And after a second autopsy, Dr. Harry Bunnell has determined that Janie's death was a homicide. He found blunt force trauma to the face and said her neck snapped back. Her spinal cord had been torn. She had fractures in her vertebra. The second autopsy was meant to provide clarity, but it ended up causing even more chaos. The Arkansas Crime Lab is reviewing Dr. Bunnell's autopsy. Dr. Fami Malik is long gone from the crime lab, and Dr. Charles Cox is the chief medical examiner. He gives a scathing review of Dr. Bunnell's work. He writes, As there is no gentle or diplomatic way to say this, I will be quite blunt. Dr. Bunnell's report, as far as its defects in observation, documentation, and conclusions are concerned, is grossly substandard. I am frankly aghast at the numerous departures from standard forensic medical practice. On the basis of a few poorly described autopsy findings and five photographs, he would have the reader believe a murder had taken place. I do not believe his report should be given any serious consideration. Dr. Cox's main point is that the autopsy report is full of insufficient descriptions and documentation. He says that's particularly important in this case because it's challenging for even the most experienced forensic pathologist to make a determination after a body has been previously autopsied, embalmed, and buried. You have to be able to discern evidence of the injuries that happened before death and figure out which ones happened post-mortem. It's also particularly important when you rule a death a homicide, where someone can be convicted. Dr. Cox isn't convinced by any of Dr. Bunnell's determinations. Dr. Cox says that the discoloration on Janie's skin is more likely from post-mortem changes and not contusions or abrasions from an injury to the face. Dr. Bunnell also says there's an extensive hyperextension injury, but he doesn't document any hemorrhaging in that area, specifically around the third and fourth vertebrae, which he said were fractured. Dr. Bunnell provided five photographs in his autopsy, all of the body from a distance and none of the actual injuries. By comparing Bunnell's autopsy to the photographs in the original autopsy, Dr. Cox writes, these injuries simply do not exist. Dr. Cox also talks about the x-ray. Remember, both Dr. Bunnell and the pathologist who reviewed Dr. Malik's autopsy said the side view of Janie's x-ray looked like a male skull. Dr. Cox writes, Much has been written about this death, both in mainstream media and on the internet. Much has been written that is simply and categorically false. The most egregious example here is the purported switching of Janie Ward's autopsy x-rays with those of a male. As part of this review, we compared photos of x-rays taken at the time of the 1989 autopsy with x-rays of the exhumed body examined in 2004. There is no doubt that the two individuals are one and the same. I can't wrap my head around this. I've read over both Dr. Malik and Dr. Bunnell's autopsies dozens of times, and neither one of them present enough evidence to answer the question, what actually happened to Janie's spine? The two pathologists who reviewed Dr. Malik's work in 1992 weren't even convinced a spinal injury was present. But the spinal cord has become central to what people think killed Janie. During his autopsy, Dr. Malik removed part of Janie's spine he provided color photographs of the portion of the spine that he removed, with an arrow pointing to the hemorrhaging that indicated an injury. These are the same photographs that Dr. Malik gave Ron Ward when he visited the crime lab. Both the Wards and Mike have placed a huge amount of emphasis on the fact that Dr. Malik 
gave Ron those photos. They believe that these photos show that the spinal cord is torn. Here's Mike. And uh, he had sent them color photographs of his autopsy. And one of those photographs was of the spinal canal opened. And in the center of it was the spinal, her spinal column, her spinal cord, torn, not cut. You could say it's shredded, it's torn, which was obviously the fatal injury. Uh, that's why she couldn't move when she fell out in the yard. She just laid there until she just couldn't breathe. You know, that's what happens. Your respiratory system shuts down and you're done. The fact that the spinal cord was torn, according to Mike, means that Janie suffered a catastrophic injury to her spine that night at the party. The spinal cord being cut would indicate that it was an artifact of the autopsy, something that Dr. Malik had cut in order to remove a portion of the spine. We're gonna come back to this later, but we need to figure out if there's any way of determining exactly what happened to that spinal cord. We'll be right back. Though we're apart these days, we're sharing more. So at Geico, we'd like to say thanks. Thanks for sharing your savage dance moves. Thanks for sharing your DIY haircut fails. Thanks for sharing your inner lip sync star. Now it's our turn to share with the Geico Give Back, a 15% credit on car and motorcycle policies for current and new customers. Because we're committed for the long haul, the 15% credit lasts your full policy term. Visit geico.com slash giveback for more info and eligibility. Hey guys, it's Bobby Bones. I host the Bobby Bones Show, and I'm pretty much always sleepy because I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. A couple hours later, I get all my friends together, and we get into a room, and we do a radio show. We share our lives, we tell our stories, we try to find as much good in the world as we possibly can, and we look through the news of the day that you'll care about. Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music, too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app. The news of the second autopsy spreads throughout Arkansas with the help of Mike Masterson's weekly columns. ABC also sends people down to Arkansas to start following the case. Over four years... They develop their research into a 40-minute program called Primetime. The case is making national headlines. That's when the wards held a 200-person rally at the Capitol that we talked about in the first episode. People started submitting hundreds of tips to the Justice for Janie Forum. And in Marshall, the crusade between Jerry and Sarah and the wards split the town. Some people think that Sarah, or someone else, or multiple people, killed Janie with a baseball bat. One user even claims that Janie didn't even die at the party. They said she was six miles away from the cabin, down at the Buffalo River, a popular party spot for young people in Marshall. There was an altercation. She was hit in the face. She was unconscious, and she was drowned to make sure she was dead. She was then brought to the cabin, where the story was made up about the fall. After that, she was taken to the car wash to remove evidence and dressed in different clothes. A lot of the wilder theories presented on the forum can be dismissed just by looking back at the evidence. Investigator Bill Beach interviewed more than 30 people who were at the party. All of them said that they saw Janie there, alive and well. In episode two, we found discrepancies in the timeline, and the witness interview that was the biggest outlier was the one from police dispatcher Harold Young. He said that Ron Rose had passed by the sheriff's office 
and alerted him to Janie in the back of the truck. He said that that was around 6.30 p.m. But no one in the truck said that happened. Most of the witnesses said that Janie fell closer to 7.30. Even if Harold was slightly off on the time, I can't help thinking that every stop that Ron Rose made meant that minutes were ticking by as Janie lay dying in the back of his truck, minutes that could have been used to save her life. A lot of people witnessed Janie lying on the ground and saw her getting loaded in the truck. This illustrates an important investigative principle. It is suspicious if witness accounts are too divergent. But it's also suspicious if witness accounts are too similar because they can sound rehearsed. In Janie's case, investigators concluded that the witness accounts were similar and dissimilar enough to indicate that people were telling the truth. In Ron Ward's recordings, we find a tape of Ron and Mona talking with prosecutors and investigators about the witness statements. One of the officers there explains this idea about the witness statements. On this, in this particular case, it is my recollection that the, uh, that the witnesses or the people who were there at the, at the party were interviewed something like three times. And, and, and I believe that I went back over this myself many times to, to satisfy myself as to it. But if you've got a bunch of people who all tell you wildly divergent stories... Now, you're all basically the same story. Well... Well, about who was involved. I know, I know. But what I'm saying is, if you have a bunch of people and they all tell you wildly divergent stories, you know, before they don't have anything in common, well, somebody's mistaken, okay? Or if you have a bunch of people and they all tell you exactly the same story, I think you got a problem. In this, the statements that were given all appear to be basically consistent in the main, but they, they, uh, they differ in just those ways that you might expect the statements to differ if you had a bunch of people standing around, nobody paying attention. We bring this up because these outlier theories, like that Janie was not at the party and was struck elsewhere, are highly unlikely because there's a consensus of witnesses. So what we know is that Janie was at the party, At some point, she collapsed. She was on the ground. And when she was loaded into the pickup truck, she was still alive. But by the time she was in the bank parking lot, she was dead. So what happened between the party and the bank parking lot? We talked to someone who tried to figure that out. His name is Richard Walter. The wards found him through parents of murdered children. Along with a second opinion service that led to Dr. Bunnell's autopsy, That organization also hosts support groups for parents and has an annual conference. The wards attended one, and that's where they met Richard Walter. He's the founder of the VDOC Society in Philadelphia. The VDOC consists of a group of investigators and forensic scientists who meet once a month to discuss unsolved cases. He's an expert in forensic psychology, and he's been involved in multiple high-profile cases. Ron and Mona knew instantly they needed to talk one-on-one with Richard, in the hopes he could help with Janie's case. I also belonged years ago to the um, National Board of, of Parents and Murdered Children. And so I was at one of the meetings and I would go and I would give a little chat to the parents and this and that and the words were there. They uh, took a liking to me. 
on particularly as to what I had to say, and they felt that I was an honorable guy, apparently. And mm-hmm. so they told me their case about Danny, and it sounded, and many parents will, they blame law enforcement, or they blame this, or they blame that, or whatever else. And sometimes it's not. So I thought, well, I went to Doc and said to them, this is their tale. Law enforcement there apparently is not willing to come here and discuss the case in chief. And so I would like to go there and have a look-see. In November of 2001, Richard went down to Marshall to see if he could shed any new light on the case. And he ended up having a really bizarre experience. I then obviously saw the wards. And then a uh, state trooper showed up who liked the words, amongst other things. We became quick friends, and that's a damn good thing because I found the environment extremely hostile. And the only place that I could rent, allegedly, for my week stay or three-day stay or whatever it was, okay, it was a house inside a walled environment. It was a citadel inside a walled environment. They just didn't want me there. One person in particular stood out to Richard, Gary Don. He was the one who provided the beer and the booze for the party. And the story Richard said he got from Gary Don is completely different than what we read in the police file. The two drove up to the cabin, and in a private conversation, Gary Don told Richard there was some sort of conflict between Sarah and Janie that then got out of hand. And that there was a conflict. She went off the porch. Uh, then somebody decided that they should call the police and so the police. Now then they got into panic and everybody was trying to hide their drugs and do all these other sorts of things, okay? So they decided then to get rid of Janie. And from that then, they put her in the back of the pickup. He then told me that she was nonverbal, but she was groaning, she was moaning, she was doing all these other sorts of things. Uh, instead of going the shortest way back to town and to the hospital and whatever else, if you are exiting the party place and you turned left, that was the fastest way back to town. They turned right, and we turned right. And they, they then took me through a hill, dale, valley, uh, muddy uh, spots and this and that. Then... You also had we also had to forge a creek that ran across across the road. It was suggested because of the crawdads and the other sorts of things that were found in their clothing and hair and whatever, okay, that she had been further beaten. She wasn't dead when she left the party. Somewhere before before she got back to town though, she was dead. And it was believed that they stopped along the way at the creek, put her in the creek, beat the hell out of her, finished her off, and from that then drove into town. Allegedly then uh, the driver of the vehicle of the pickup then drove through a car wash with her in the back, and then they called the police. Going back to the paramedics and to what Ron Ward saw in the morgue, they all agreed that Janie was covered in sand, She even had sand under her clothes and stuck in her bra strap. It was also stated in their affidavit that she was covered in beggar's lice. Beggar's lice is a plant that has little hooks that very easily get attached to fur, clothes, or in this case, hair. And Ron said it's often found near the creek beds in Marshall. 
but there was no mention of crawdads. This theory would help explain why Janie's hair and body were wet, and why witnesses said there was a puddle of water under Ron Rose's truck in the bank parking lot. But again, in any official police record, no one in the truck mentioned taking this route. Nor did Gary Don ever give this explanation to police. In the end, Richard told Ron that he couldn't do anything to help him get justice for his daughter. And so ultimately, then I said, Ron, I said, I hate to hear myself say this, but I'm going to tell you what, as a friend and whatever else, I believe you. I believe that your daughter was murdered, and I believe uh, that we know the story, but it is so corrupt in Marshall, Arkansas, that it will never, never, never come to fruition unless a miracle takes place. That said, uh, I'd love to see it told, but I said, I gotta, I gotta tell you, I just have to, I just have to drop out. Now, I said, I'll be back in a heartbeat when it gets back to a murder investigation. You need me? I'll be there. But until you can get the politics sorted out, I'm spinning my wheels, and I can't do that. We'll be right back. Think back to when you were a kid, the moment you watched wrestling. That's what we are. We are that wrestling podcast. The Battleground Podcast is your podcast for all things pro wrestling. Hi, my name is Battle. I'm the host of the Battleground Podcast. We do this every week. We talk about pro wrestling. I grab some of my friends, and we sit down and chat. Eli joins me. That's my co-host. And we're also joined by the Bells of the Brawl, Lena and KB, to give a female perspective of pro wrestling. Join us each week as we sit down, talk about everything that's going on in the world of professional wrestling, including with some amazing special guests. Past guests of the show include Cody Rhodes, the Young Bucks, Roman Reigns, Charlotte Flair, WCW Legends and ECW Legends, and frontman of the Smashing Pumpkins and current NWA president Billy Corgan have all stopped by, and we'd love for you to be a part of the show. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Battleground Podcast. The Battleground Podcast is available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This theory that Richard presents also says that Janie was at the party and that something happened there, but that something also happened in the truck en route from the party to the bank parking lot. So we need to find out which direction the truck took. From reading witness reports, we had been assuming that the truck went the most direct route, which would be to the left out of the driveway. The three people in the truck, Ron Rose, Sherry, and Kim, all said that they didn't make any stops between the cabin and the bank parking lot, and that they went there because of its proximity to the ambulance service. But in the mayhem of leaving the party, there was a car accident reported. We read about it first in Sherry's statement. She'd actually left the party with another Marshall High School student named Brian. And Brian apparently ran his truck into a tree while leaving the cabin. He had gone to the left out of the driveway, and other people leaving had to help him pull his car out of the way. This road is narrow, and it was blocking the rest of the people who were trying to leave. Mona and Crystal heard that Brian was so upset on the night of the party that he had to be sedated by his father, who was a doctor in town. We need to know if Richard's theory is plausible, and if they went by the creek bed or ended up driving down rockier roads. Was the truck diverted to the right? Or was this another delay in getting Janie to help? Ron Ward continues to call and talk to people on the phone about the case. On the night Janie died, 
It was Ron's cousin Steve who came and picked Mona and Ron up to take them to the police station, where they got the news about Janie. Steve and Ron grew up together. They were close. But over the years, their relationship grew tense. Steve owned the cabin. His son Jay threw the party. Ron accused Steve of not being truthful early in the investigation, which is revealed in one of the conversations that Ron had with investigator Bill Beach. Tell me that you had some more names. Uh, yes, uh, I do. Okay. I think it's very important that... Uh, have you questioned Steve Ward? Not other than that first night, no. That night you questioned him. How did he act? What did he tell you? Well, that was just the first night that I was down there, Ron. That was the first night that it happened at that particular time. Uh, uh, you know, the only thing Steve said was that uh, he hadn't been there, that he was at his home in Delphine, and he didn't have any idea what had happened. You know, but Jamie was the one that had the use of the house, and that was basically it. Well, just the way Steve uh, acted when he came to us. Ron is saying that Steve has told him plenty of ideas about what happened to his daughter. That she choked on an orange peel and suffocated. That she tripped and fell. That she was drunk. Ron is also not clear on where Steve was that night. He immediately started telling us there was no foul play, that he was not there, that he was home sick in bed with a sore throat. And uh, then his wife tells us that... uh, he was at a party at Mass Merchandise, 1,500 people can swear up and down. And his whole attitude toward, uh, see, Steve and I was uh, real close, just like, we're like brothers, you know. Matter of fact, I've had to build, uh, build that very house up there where this incident took place. Mm-hmm. And then he just completely turns 180 degrees away from me. Ron said, everything he told us was a lie. But Steve has also been trying to figure out what happened and had an emotional phone call with Ron. I wasn't there, Ronnie. Well, I'm not saying you were. I only know what, what I think has happened. Any speculations from what I've told you has only led up to hardship. And I don't want that no more. I'm tired of it. I want to know the truth like you do, and I don't want you to accuse me of nothing. And I'm not, and I'm ever, not, I'm not ever accusing you of a damn thing. Get that in your mind. The only thing I've ever said was that you knew what happened. No, I don't know. I mean, I honestly don't have no idea to this world what happened. Steve proposes another theory. Janie was at the party, and after the chaos of the party line call and announcement that the police were coming, Janie was pushed into a post that was on the porch. Steve thought that the force of that could have bruised Janie's face and body. She then fell onto the ground. Steve suggested that Sarah might have been the one who ran into Janie, or another Marshall High School student who was fleeing the scene to avoid the cops. Brian, the kid who crashed the truck, is another possibility. No way to running out of the house. And she's standing there by the keg, fishing get her beer, and somebody ran over and shoved her into that post. And they said when she turned around, they heard a thump. And when they turned around, she reached out to grab the post, and she spun around and fell off the porch. It ain't nobody took him from the river or done nothing else to her. 
This phone call between Ron and Steve is charged. Whenever Ron starts speculating, Steve implores him to stop. Ronnie, my honest opinion was, I'm sorry to say, that it was a pure accident. And nobody could help it or somebody would have. I'm not disagreeing that it wasn't an accident, but it didn't happen at the porch, is what I'm saying. Yeah, it did. It had to have. It couldn't have. Jamie was there at the party. She went out there with Ronnie and them, and she was there. She probably went around behind the house. Steve suggests that the debris that Janie was covered in either came from his yard or from the bed of Ron Rose's truck. And he pleads with Ron to believe it was totally accidental and that everyone was doing the best they could to help his daughter. Remember that Dr. Bunnell said that Janie's spine was broken and he confirmed the injuries Ron had seen on Janie the night she died, a broken nose and bruising on the face. Steve's theory that Janie ran into a post matches these injuries. After Dr. Bunnell's autopsy, the ward's petition to change the manner of death on Janie's death certificate from undetermined to homicide. People across Arkansas are now thoroughly invested in the case. It appears on local news stations, and everyone is waiting to see what will happen. Mike Huckabee is governor at the time and gives $10,000 to hire a special prosecutor to work on the case. The case is reopened, and a new investigation begins. All statutes of limitations have run out. All statutes, except homicide. I'm Katherine Townsend, and this is Hell and Gone. Hell and Gone is a joint production between School of Humans and iHeartRadio. It is written and recorded by me, Katherine Townsend. Taylor Church and Gabby Watts are our producers and story editors. Executive producers are Brandon Barr, Brian Lavin, and L.C. Crowley for School of Humans, and Connell Byrne and Chuck Bryant for iHeart. Our field producer is Miranda Hawkins. Theme and original score are by Ben Salee. Available wherever you get your music. Please visit us at HelenGonePodcast.com or follow us on social media. Though we're apart these days, we're sharing more. So at Geico, we'd like to say thanks. Thanks for sharing your savage dance moves. Thanks for sharing your DIY haircut fails. Thanks for sharing your inner lip sync star. Now it's our turn to share with the Geico Giveback, a 15% credit on car and motorcycle policies for current and new customers. Because we're committed for the long haul, the 15% credit lasts your full policy term. Visit geico.com slash giveback for more info and eligibility. I'm Baratunde Thurston, and I feel like we're having a moment. When Officer Derek Chauvin killed George Floyd, something in America broke. I'm going to try to explain it. From the COVID connection to what defund the police actually means. When Donald Trump encourages cops not to choke people, you know something's different. Listen to We're Having a Moment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts.